good morning. Again, uh, my name is Wally. If I have not met you, uh, I'm the teaching pastor for Walker Harbor. Uh, thrilled to be with you all. And um, we have been spending the last few months uh, in the gospel according to a gentleman named Matthew. And we are continuing that, but what we've been doing is as you go through it, there are themes. We just finished up a, a large section of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so what often is, is some of these themes or movements, we will make essentially a series within the series, if you want to call it a series. And so we, we portion those out. And so for the next uh, number of weeks, we're going we're gonna to be calling this next section On Location. Because we went from Jesus being in a spot uh, and teaching a big, massive sermon, and now he is going to take that and he's going to start living it out and showing everyone what it looks like. So not just talking then, he's going to say, and this is what the kingdom of heaven in your midst looks like. And so we're going to call this next section On Location. We're going to go on location with Jesus to a number of places uh, and then we're going to look at uh, some different people, groups, if you will, that he will be with as well. So we'll begin um, with a word of prayer, and then we're going to sink into uh, this first location, um, which I'm really excited about. We have a lot to dig into. We're going to do a mixture of zooming in and looking at specific words and how the depth and width of them is really, really helpful within it. And there will be times when we zoom out and take a larger view so that we can see uh, how the whole scope of Scripture ties together. And so we get to do, uh, for my uh, new wine friends, we get to do some different approaches to the Scriptures to give us some different angles and to give us a bit more hopeful depth within uh, approaching this so we can see things open up and hopefully open us up to the more that is the divine. Um, but let's pray first. Gracious God, we bless you for this day. And we've been gifted another day, a new day. And we are grateful. And in that, God, uh, we pray for our neighbors uh, who have been uh, experienced a traumatic uh, event and a displacement from what they call home. And in that, God, uh, we, we pray your uh, arms wrapped around them, and may that come through a community of people, uh, your people that wrap their arms around them. Uh, and God, in ways in which we can um, love Walker, loving our neighbor, as there are some practical needs um, that we can help meet. And so we pray your, your grace and peace and comfort and presence as you uh, give that always. And uh, we, we pray that for them. And, um, and as we gather now to sink into how you uh, show yourself, reveal yourself, and move in us and among us, 
Um, may we have open hearts and open minds to what you are up to, what you are saying to each one of us, but also to us collectively as a community. And so uh, may the posture and meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you and you alone, our Lord, our rock, and our Savior. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen, amen. So as we sink into this, Jesus has finished up a teaching uh, on a foothill like this. So we always got to get our Mount of Beatitudes picture up. So in Israel, you have the Mount of Beatitudes, which is really a foothill. And so Matthew is calling it a mountain because he wants his listeners, his readers, to be thinking of Moses going up and coming down a mountain, providing the divine's instructions. And he wants you to know Jesus is in the line of Moses. Here is the new Moses, Moses 2.0, if you will, who's coming and providing uh, the instructions of God. And so those that are gathered for this sermon, which that this crowd grows, they're amazed and say that Jesus teaches with authority. That's how chapter 7 ends with them saying, he teaches with a kind of authority that is beyond the authority that the, our teachers of Torah even taught. And why, and this we're going to get into, why do they say things like that? Why would they say that he teaches with more authority, with a different kind of authority? Well, it's because of what follows. This is why. Matthew 8, so now we're beginning chapter 8, or what we call chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, we jumped one, one back. There we go. When Jesus came down, so he comes down from this foothill, mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Jesus touches the unclean man, which according to the Torah would make Jesus unclean. What are you doing? But he's like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. What, what did this guy do? He cried out. You can, so Jesus reaches out and he says, yes, so be clean. And then he speaks. He says two simple words, be clean. And these words create a whole new world for this man. Jesus knows that words can create new worlds. And then Jesus walks on. Verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, or Capernaum, if we want to be annoying, uh, a, centurion, a centurion came to him asking for help. What's he doing? Crying out. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But what? Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Apparently, this Roman centurion trusts that Jesus' words can create a whole new world for his servant. So in humility, he simply asks that he speak the words, 
which is fascinating. But Jesus here uses a very specific word for his interaction with this centurion. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, this guy just saying, no, you can just speak it from there. He was what? Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great trust. Now, that word uh, amazed is thamadzo. Go ahead and say thamadzo. That's the Greek word thamadzo. It, it means to be wondered at, to hold in admiration. Jesus is wondering at the trust of this man, like a, a good wondering, holding in admiration this guy's trust in him. And we can sit back and go, wow, this is really beautiful, because it is. But this is also the kind of thing that's going to get Jesus in a whole lot of hot water, or, or, or differently said, it's going to get him killed. Why? Because what did he say? This man here holds more trust than anyone that I've experienced in where? In Israel? This Roman centurion has more trust than anyone in Israel. You, you, can't, you can't say things like that. The word is tribalism. Jesus says that this Roman centurion trusts his words more than anyone in Israel. Eventually, the religious zealots will snap and flex on Jesus and make him the scapegoat. You, you, you are a problem. You are making us look bad, and so we need to remove you. It's like saying other teams hold more reverence, respect, and trust for who Jesus is more than his very own team. Jesus says trust is what matters most. And in trusting who Jesus is, what he is teaching, and trusting his very way of being in the world. That's what matters most. If we would just hear this one thing this morning and embrace this part, Jesus doesn't begin, because this is a Roman centurion, Jesus doesn't begin with whether or not, well, is this guy a Democrat? Is he a Republican? Is he, maybe he's from Ohio, and we really got to, he doesn't start there. You, you trust? Great. All other labels can just disintegrate in the midst of you trusting that we would begin there, meeting people where they are and allowing labels to disintegrate to trust. Verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law, oh, Pete is married, how about that, uh, lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, Many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, Jesus, and he drove out the spirits, how? With a word. And he healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. How does Jesus drive out spirits? With a word. 
with a word. Words create whole new worlds. And Jesus does this, and this I think is really important. He does this with his, with his life. He quotes, he goes back to the prophet Isaiah, but he's like, Jesus is doing this with his life. Because a lot of religious people always jump to or only speak of Jesus' death. But we see in these stories how Jesus carries an authority that is more beyond and bigger than the typical teachers of Torah because he lives what he teaches. He isn't just spouting off religious rules, but he is showing them what love acts like and how his love transforms others' very being in the world, how they will be. Love does that. It's crucial that we create space then to hear this thick piece, this very rich text. So listen to Isaiah. Let's go to the prophet Isaiah in his words in more full, and we'll read the voice, which is really helpful translation in terms of getting this. Yet, and this is the prophet Isaiah then speaking, yet it was our suffering he carried. He's speaking of the one who is to come. Our pain and distress, our sick to the soulness. We, because he suffered, because he experienced this, we just figured that God had rejected him. That God was the reason he hurt so badly. But he was hurt because of us. He suffered so our wrongdoing wounded and crushed him. He endured the breaking that made us whole. The injuries he suffered became our healing. This was written long, 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 long before Jesus. And they understood there would be a carrying, there would be an absorbing of death and destruction. But it's so important when the prophet says, and we'll assume someone who experiences hurt and pain and suffering, well, there must be something wrong with them. God must be punishing them. And the prophet's already setting it up going, no, nah, that doesn't work that way. That's not the way this God is. So he, he talks of the one who will carry the pain of his people, absorb and hold the suffering of his people, which leads to the prophet saying, um, we will think God's rejecting him, but to suffer and hurt and experience such struggle and excruciating pain must mean a person, must, well, they must have done something wrong. They must have offended the divine, right? I mean, that's what a lot of people think. Why, is things, why am I experiencing this pain? Why are things not going right for me? What did I do wrong. The prophet Isaiah and then Matthew linking into the prophet is saying there's way more going on here and it is largely beyond our mental comprehension. We might be yelling, stop this madness, stop the suffering, the pain, and the crushing, and yet Jesus knows in order to overcome, conquer, and complete death and destruction, it must empty its ammunition in order to be removed, buried, and then announced that death and destruction do not get the last word. <laughs> so we're going to hang on to that bigness because the temptation and tendency is for shrinking into small thinking, which we'll see as we keep going. Matthew 8, verse 18 to 20. When Jesus saw the crowds, so now the crowds just keeps getting bigger, gathering around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. 
Jesus replied, so you just said to this, hey, I'm going to follow you, and then all of a sudden Jesus says, yeah, well, foxes have den and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And you go, oh, oh, he's been out in the sun too long again. What? Foxes have den, birds have nests? What? Oh, no, I didn't, I don't remember talking about any of that business. In ancient Jewish culture, to talk about how great and significant a man was, you would describe him as a lion. But if a man was a liar, a fake, an imposter, you would call him a fox. Jesus is going to refer to Herod as that fox, saying, go tell that fox I'm going to keep driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. And Herod lives and rules from a palace. You could call his den. Foxes have dens. Now, the symbol of the Romans was an eagle, a bird. Caesar lives in and rules from a palace, his nest. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the kingdom of heaven does not roll that way. The kingdom in which Jesus was walking in and inviting people to participate in operates with mobility, with generative words that create new worlds, words of compassion and mercy for all people. These are healing words. That's the way the kingdom of heaven rolls, not palaces where we just lock ourselves away and sit in our ivory tower and rule from up high in our comfort and luxury and forget all you all. So, beautiful, great. And then Jesus says, anyone else want to follow me? Verse 21 and 22. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the, bed, the, the dead bury their own dead. Sounds kind of harsh, right? We read that and you're like, peace. Which means context is probably helpful, correct? Now, we have a couple of options, because otherwise it sounds like Jesus is just being insensitive. A couple options here. First, the Hebrew people would bury the dead by placing the embalmed body in a tomb, and then a year later, so they hold a funeral for him, they embalm the body, put it in a tomb, and have a funeral. Then a year later, they go into the tomb, and then they collect the bones, and they put the bones in a small ossuary box that looked like this. So I took this when I was in Israel. All these boxes were in these tombs. They've collected them. Now they put them in these, and they have another funeral a year later just to put the boxes back in. And so it could be understood that Jesus is saying, you've already held the funeral, so don't keep returning to the grave. In other words, don't keep returning to death back there and then that will keep you from living in the kingdom of life right here and right now. So that's one way we could read it, or a number of scholars, including our friend Tom and T. Wright, among them says that it's likely actually from just the wording that this, ma this man's father has not even passed away yet, and he is making an excuse to simply go and prepare for the future. My dad is getting older, so can I just go and prepare for my dad to be buried? So in other words, this guy is using the future as an excuse to live in the present. Take your pick. Are you going to get stuck in the past and playing in funerals 
and miss living in the present? Or are you going to go, yeah, I know there's some things on the calendar that I probably should go and get ready for and miss living in the present, the right here and right now and following me. A truth for them and a truth for today. Verse 23 and 24, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. Now, we have to stop here because we have some key Greek words. Now we're going to zoom in and we're going to look at the language that's going to unpack a whole lot for us. First, a couple words. It says, not just a storm, but a furious storm. In the Greek, it's megas. Megas means great, loud intensity of. That's what kind of storm it was. Loud, and it has this intensity to it. Now, it says the storm came up. And the Greek word there is agiro. Go ahead and say agiro. Agiro means to come up. It means here to rise, to arouse from the sleep of death, to recall the dead to life. It's a really big word in the New Testament, and it's really interesting, but it raises a bunch of questions when we unpack the Greek language here, and then when we ask some questions like, where do storms typically come from? Where do storms come from? Up, right? Do you all go, yeah, and then the storm came down. Storms typically would be coming down, and it says this one, the storm came up, which then we have to look at context. So let's go to the, the Sea of Galilee, which is really a lake. So a picture I took um, from this level, so we're looking at it, and you look around it, some things to know. The, the Sea of Galilee, which is a lake, and it's good size, but it's not big when we think of our Lake Michigan and all of that. It's 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, and it sits as the lowest fresh water lake on earth, 700 feet, 705 feet below sea level. This is important, Coat. Next picture. Give you an idea again um, what some of the surrounding looks like, that you can see mountains around this thing as it sits low. And the next picture, this is from, uh, look at those people. Uh, Sarah's up teaching the kids because she would be so excited that I put this picture of us up there. Um, so then us, uh, we're up on Mount Arbel and you're looking down because this is the way it is, is this lake is down. So actually what is more common is that storms would come from the mountains. They would swoop over the mountains and come down on the lake. So when the language is used that the storm came up, it's a way of saying that the storm is coming from the deep, which is telling them this you need to is a hint to go back to in the beginning. So, Genesis 1 verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the what? The deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, this word deep is the word tahom in the Hebrew. Go ahead and say tahom. The abyss. From the very beginning, Jewish people understand that the deep is the abyss. So water, so when you go to Israel and you go and you look at this beautiful lake 
And you go, man, stunning. Where are all the boats? Like as in speedboats. Where are the sea-doos? Where are the skiers? How come people aren't just flying around? This lake is gorgeous. They don't do that. Why? Because that's the abyss. We, we don't play on that. We don't go near that. We fish on it and then get out of there because this is the abyss. Deep waters? Uh-uh. That's how they understand this. And so then they're saying the storm came from the abyss. The deep is attacking us. The abyss is after us, is how they are describing this storm. Verse 24. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you who trust too little, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. Now, a word-for-word -word literal translation reads like this. Verse 26 reads more in the literal. You who trust too little, why are you so afraid? Then having risen, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, this is where it gets fun. Their fear has them thinking about death. Yet Jesus says, you've got shrinking thinking. And then he speaks calm to the great chaos. Now let's go after these few key words here because what we're going to see is, whoa, there's way more going on. And my new wine friends, you go, when we read this thing at a deeper, wider level, whoo-wee, we have some fun going on. So that first word where it says Jesus got up or rose, guess what word it is? Agero got up to rise, to arouse from the sleep of death, to recall dead to life. Did Jesus just wake up from sleeping? Did he just get up or was way more going on? Oh, by the way, Matthew uses this word later in his story when Jesus is crucified, and then guess what he does? He a guy rose. <laughs> Whoo! You want to tell a story and go, ah, he's just getting up from a nap, or... They're going, ah, you need to zoom out and see that this is just a picture of a bigger picture. Pay attention because Jesus is going to rise up here and then what does he do? He rebukes epitamao. Go ahead and say epitamao. Epitamao. He rebukes, chides, forbids. With his words, Jesus creates a whole new world. He's saying this chaos will not continue in the new creation. You will stop now. However that is, but he speaks to the chaos and creates calm. Words create whole new worlds. So what we explored at New Wine Wednesday is how one approaches the text can offer a wider, deeper understanding, which would also send the reader, this would, back to the beginning. And in the beginning, we have this in Genesis 1, 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, and 24, and 26. And God said, God spoke, and whole new world happens right in the midst of all that is going on. He speaks life in. And this is the divine word holding power over the abyss, 
speaking goodness and shalom into being. The Hebrew people understood this in the beginning and that they understood this is how the cosmos is structured, is that the divine word creates whole new worlds over the chaos. Now we need to look at one more word because it's really good. The storm, the abyss, was just made not just calm, but it was made a specific kind of calm, great calm, which is the word megas. Loud intensity of. So the same word to describe what kind of storm it was, Matthew is telling us that Jesus acts in a way as to place himself over the storm, over the abyss, and Jesus' magos calm is more powerful than the magos storm. <laughs> it's so good. But you see, you back up and you're like, what is happening in this story? It is not just a cute story that we tell kids, you go, that, I don't even have a mental capacity for what is going on here. Wow, this is heart overwhelming. A great storm comes up on the boat. The disciples think Jesus is asleep on them, but it's in this moment that Jesus rises up, rebukes the chaos, and provides a magos calm, a calm that is mysteriously louder. Think about that. The calm is louder than the chaos. Have you ever experienced a calm that is like quiet and at the same time, its intensity of is louder than anything you've experienced? Are you with me? Jesus doesn't pull them out of the storm, but he speaks calm into the chaos and brings forth a whole new world. Come on. So let's do a quick review. After the disciples witnessed Jesus speak words to create new worlds for other people, right? They just came from this experience where he was healing them, speaking new words or words over people, creating a whole new world, healing them, right? Then Jesus hops into a boat and they set off to the other side of the lake. He lays down for a nap because healing takes a lot out of you. A storm comes up and the disciples freak out. Why? Jesus has just healed a bunch of people. Why is his ability to speak calm and to speak peace over the waves the thing that shocks the disciples? Why does this have them like, we don't know what to do with this? Contextually, the Jewish people understand the swirling and chaotic waters of the deep represent the abyss. So only the one, there's only one who holds power over the abyss. And it's who? The creator God. So when the disciples hear Jesus go, yeah, you won't do this anymore. They respond with an incredible reaction and a question, a fantastic one. Verse 27. It says, the men, the disciples were what? Thamadzo. They now are experiencing what the Roman centurion, what Jesus said about the Roman centurion, right? What? They are Thamadzo and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Yeah, they used the word, the word written here for the men now experiencing is Thamadzo, which is both exhilarating and mind-shattering for them. 
The question they asked, what kind of man is this, is the question that the Roman centurion had already answered in his heart, right? What kind of man is this? I, I trust you can just speak the word and it'll happen. And Jesus is like, whoa, this guy gets it at a level that even the Israelites don't. Shown right here by his very own disciples going, who is this guy? It seems that for the disciples to witness Jesus helping and healing other people is one thing, but to hold authority over creation has short-circuited their shrinking thinking. So, of course, they wet their tunics. Which leads to us today. I wonder how many of us would join the disciples in the midst of a storm, feeling like Jesus seems to be asleep while I am in pain. How many people have a picture of who they want God to be or have expectations for how God is to act and then things don't go as planned? How many storms have we pleaded for God to rescue us out of and it feels like, God, you're just sleeping on my pain? Why didn't God heal her? Why doesn't God shrink the tumor? Why didn't God give us a baby? We wonder, is God asleep in the midst of my Magos storm? Why does God heal some, but not all? We wrestle with the God who calls us to love our enemies and the God who resurrects Jesus from the dead but doesn't resurrect the marriage. God, I want to trust your presence, but I feel, all I feel is your absence. Why are you asleep? That's real pain, frustration, and I do not want to dismiss that pain, and I certainly don't want to minimize that pain that all of us have felt at some point. And I'm surely not going to give some Christian bumper sticker answer and just move on. It's crucial that we see this story and listen to this story while also making room for the trajectory of this story and the larger movement of the entire biblical landscape. Because when we peer into the response and the expectations of these disciples, hopefully more will come to like, oh, I see what's going on here a bit more. When the disciples woke Jesus up from in their panic, what were they hoping for when they woke him up? If we work with their response to what happened and how they were absolutely thamadzo by what he said and what those words did, we discover what their thinking was. Who is this man who has power over the abyss? From this response and from their consistent questions of Jesus and conversations we'll pick up that they have with one another about, I'm going to have a good position in Jesus' cabinet. When he is made king, when is he going to do that? I wish he would just become king and then I'm going to have a really great position. We get an idea, oh, I see what's going on here. They are talking about something much, much smaller. They're actually just hoping, hey, Jesus, wake up and grab an oar. 
Jesus, could you get a bucket? We're getting a lot of water. That's what they're waking him up. What are you sleeping for? We need someone else to, to help here. That can seem reasonable. You're in the midst of a storm, and you're like, somebody else, can you help? Reasonable. Reasonable. But this story of a storm is just one story that hints to a much larger story. We have the, you want to call it gift, the benefit of looking back and seeing the whole of this thing. This story is heading towards something bigger, far beyond a fishing boat that just needs to get to shore. Jesus didn't live and rise up to overcome a single storm. We'll we'll learn how the disciples are far more fixated on this landing a cabinet. Can I get a position in your administration, Jesus? We'll find them stuck in small world, small king thinking, and Jesus is up to a universe-wide restoration project. This This story was one of the tipping points for me in my life. This ruptured the frustration I had when I was a kid. And our church ran really hard with dialing up the shame for how bad everyone is, including me. So what you need to do is confess your horribleness, repent of that, and ask Jesus into your heart. Then you get your imaginary golden ticket to heaven. But I kept asking as a kid, how do I experience Jesus in my life and what am I to do now? I've asked Jesus into my heart dozens of times, what do I do now? And the response I got was exasperated, and they told me, would you just relax and just wait? But evacuation theology, getting out of here and going to the safe shore, felt incomplete, even for my 12-year-old heart. What? Sit and wait? That's the best you can give me? until I get out of here? Which highlights when Jesus speaks calm, he speaks shalom into and over the abyss. And the disciples are dizzy with amazement, thamadzo. Because the disciples were simply looking for an incremental incremental change. That's what they were looking for. It's as if they were looking for a redesigned container that can hold 10% more storage. Oh my goodness, could you just give us the the bag that holds 20% more chocolate chips, Jesus? Can you do this? Like, get an oar and maybe get us to shore. Jesus, get us out of the storm, because when you're in a boat and the storm is swirling, it can feel overwhelming, I know. And it's here that we find Jesus speaking generative words that are hinting at a whole new world right here in the midst of this one. This is why the prophet Isaiah spoke about what? People who would think that any kind of pain or suffering must mean losing or punishment. But Jesus is moving towards absorbing, carrying, and then burying all pain and chaos in order to launch a new creation where there will be no pain or chaos, which is beyond our mental capacities and requires a heart-transforming kind of trust. 
Yes, the storm is frightening. In the midst of the storm, panic has us think survival. For just getting through the hour, the day, this season? Of course, of course. But I want to trust that God is bigger than this storm, bigger than my expectations, that God is doing a universe-wide restoration project. Our culture we live in tries to convince us that we're the centrality of everything, which is why we need the upside-down kingdom of heaven to summon us to trust that the river of Christ is bigger than the tsunami of our mind. That is upside-down thinking. The river of Christ is bigger than the tsunami that swirls in my mind. I understand standing in the boat with the disciples, asking what kind of man is this, praying for an open and expanding heart that desires to walk with the divine in the new creation, which is about participation rather than escape. This experiential participation in the new creation is teaching me that the depth of the divine swallows up the tahome, the abyss. I'll go first. I confess, I can quickly get stuck in the tsunami of my mind. In this teaching, in putting it together, I'm going, okay, ooh, I, what, what did, I can't say more. I start going, if I say that, people just go, oh, that's all woo-woo. That's all, come on, man. And all of a sudden, I'm overthinking and overthinking, and I'm in this thing, and I do that all the time. You know, quickly, I can get stuck in. This day is overwhelming, and I get all anxious and just lose it so easily in the swirling and tsunami of my mind. I do it a lot. And so I have to repeat this prayer over and over. I, I say this prayer. The words of Jesus calm the storm, care for the soul, and call us to participate in the new creation that's on the other side of the empty tomb. This storm is not the end of the story. It's a story in the midst of a much, much bigger story. This storm is not the end. This storm is not the end of the story. This sits in the midst of a much, much bigger story. A prayer, I'll say over and over. The storm is real, and to be honest, I'm not sure. I'm not sure in the midst of the storm if I'm wet from the waves or if I wet my tunic. Not sure which it is, but I am clinging to the consistent, reliable, and trustworthy Jesus who speaks words that create new worlds. I have to trust that. I will trust that because otherwise I'll get lost in this single storm and miss out on the world-creating words of Jesus. And so it's open my heart, open my mind, that I might listen and hear something that is a divine word that shapes and reshapes and moves me in ways that I cannot explain. In fact, the only thing, the best I can do is thamazo. It's just, it shatters my mind. And it's thamazo. I just am blown away. I need that. God, I want thamazo kind of trust. 
May that be true of you as I pray it will be continually true of me even in the midst of a Magos storm that will bow to the Magos calm of Yeshua. Gracious God, we need ears to hear and hearts that are open to experience your words that create a whole new world right in the midst of this storm. When the waves start moving, the wind is swirling. I confess, God, that I can get lost in the tsunami of my mind. That your words, that your breath would open me up to making room for Thamadzo, for amazement at how big you are rather than how small or even big, this storm is. It, it may be huge, but it is not bigger than you. How oh, that you would breathe a word into us that we would learn to trust more and more and more. And then, then as a community, God, we need one another. Why? To speak words of encouragement, to challenge one another, and even to step in for one another. Help us be the kind of community that steps in with one another when you can't take that next step. Tie your shoes to mine and I'll do the walking. And when you're rested, then you can take that next step when I can't. That we would walk with you and walk with one another, being able to give strength when there's weakness and to lean into you for all of it, God. I trust that you are breathing new life where there is death. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.